This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. The stock market hit a new record high last week after a rough start to the year. It looks like investors are feeling bullish again after 2023 ended with the everything rally that lifted stocks, bonds, crypto, and just about everything else. But one big question mark still hanging over the market is November's presidential election. The election will set the course for tax policy, infrastructure investment, the power of unions, and the role of government spending. All of those things will have a major impact on how markets perform. And you can expect to hear a lot more about them as the year goes on. But here at Take on the Week, we want to get you ahead of the news. While nothing is certain, it's very likely that President Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee for president. So what can investors and everyday Americans who are thinking about their bank accounts, their jobs and their families expect from the rest of this year and the next four years if Biden is reelected? To find out, we're talking to Jared Bernstein, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. The CEA is an agency within the White House that advises and shapes the president's economic policy. Chair Bernstein previously served as Biden's chief economist during his first two years as vice president from 2009 to 2011. So it's safe to say he knows the president and his economic priorities very well. He joins us now for a special episode of WSJ's Take on the Week. We're going to talk jobs, the national debt, inflation, China and the trade war, and whether the U.S. economy needs more stimulus or some serious budget cuts. So, Chair Bernstein, how is the Biden administration thinking about the U.S. economy right now? A year ago, many outlets assured us that by now we would be in recession. I saw you know, economists assuring us that it would take many more points of unemployment to get the inflation rate down as far as it's come down. And yet here we are looking at really solid growth, a job market with unemployment below 4% for almost two years in a row, inflation down two-thirds off of its peak, actual price decline in some key price areas, and real wages rising, actually wages beating prices. So I definitely like where we are. Like, there's always risk to the forecast, but the resiliency of this economy and the effectiveness of executing on the president's vision to maintain the strong job market while easing price pressures, I think that's characterizing today's economy in, a, in quite a positive way. So having said all that, are there things in the economy that concern you right now? Well, the answer to that question is always yes. I'm paid to be concerned about things. <laughs> okay, good. If you, if you said and no, I was going to be worried. Exactly. I, I sleep like a baby. I wake up <laughs> screaming every two hours. Um, there are 
trajectories that I just described that I think are very important to keep going. So one of the things that's notable about this economy is that is it is almost 70% consumer spending. If I were talking to you about the European economy, that'd be 55%. If it were China, it'd be 45%. So as our consumers go, so goes uh, our overall growth. And one of the things we've seen is very strong, consistent consumption. Uh, we got an upside surprise to the retail sales report, yet another good month. That was December. And so it's really important that these linkages between tight labor market, easing inflation, strong consumer spending keep going. And you know, there are links in that chain, and every link has to be watched carefully. You talked about the strong consumer and the importance of the consumer to the U.S. economy. Right. I think that brings me right to this question about consumer confidence, because as much as we've seen strong retail sales and, you know, continued spending, we have seen very weak numbers on consumer sentiment, on consumer confidence, lower than they've been about 90 percent of the time. Why do you think it is that folks have such a lack of confidence right now? Well, I think it has something to do with just how much people have been through a 100-year pandemic. Uh, now we have you know, two global conflicts when it comes to geopolitics. Um, and the fact that a global inflation was set off by this uh, pandemic. And in fact, we've made considerably more progress against inflation than many other advanced economies. Uh, but the president, when he talks about this to this day, he says, look, prices are still too high. And I think that's embedded in some of that. But there's ways in which you have to get under the hood, at least a couple. First of all, it really is true that in December, two of our most closely watched indicators of consumer confidence or sentiment both shot up quite strongly. At the same time, we know that almost two-thirds of Americans rate their current financial situation as uh, being good. 19% say it's very good. So there's also kind of a split between what people say about their own finances and these broader measures uh, that you're raising. Third, I think it's important to listen to what people say. They are the arbiters of their economic outlook. So I'm not discounting that at all. But we also have to look at what they do. And certainly uh, their actions, whether it's entrepreneurs starting new businesses, which we've seen record rates, or whether it's people out there spending their paychecks, which are now rising faster than prices for a lot of people, that's got to be in the mix too. Mm. So it's not a simple calculation. I think you have to look at all those different angles. No, absolutely. I agree with you. And looking at some of those angles, I mean, you talked about the the, the increase in consumer sentiment. And one way to look at it is, yeah, consumer sentiment is up more than 15% in December from November. But mm -hmm. another way to look at that might be that in November, that was one of the weakest reports on consumer sentiment we'd gotten in years. And I think when you look at whether it's real average weekly earnings or whether you look at other measures, those have been considerably weak. And you're getting folks saying, man, we just can't take it anymore. But as you said, they do keep spending. Retail sales was strong again last week. And it does seem like folks are just continuing to go out and buy, maybe even though they can't afford it. Is that something you're hearing about? Well, I think we have some differences in how we understand the underlying trends. Because there, I think, yes, low level, but positive change. The reason I think that's important is because I think we're on the right track. We're not out of the woods. We've got a lot more work to do. But there's a very important question is, are we helping to address these uh, sentiment issues by 
executing the president's agenda, maintain the tight job market, ease off on price pressures, try to cut costs where we can, generating real wage gains. So at least on, in terms of hourly wages, hourly wages of middle wage workers are now up you know, on a year-over-year basis for nine or 10 months in a row. Now, look, nine or 10 months is not a lifetime, and it takes people a while to absorb these more positive trends, especially given what they've been through. But that raises this question. Are we on the right track? Is there evidence that people are starting to feel a little better? Is there a glimmer of hope here? Well, certainly when they talk about their own uh, finances, even when they talk about their outlook for the future, we see positive numbers. We're seeing some of those sentiment indicators climb off the mat. So I interpret that as suggesting that the president is fighting for families like the one he grew up in. It's helping And then I think it's really important to contrast that with who the other side is fighting for, which looks to me like a very different group of people, a much more narrow set of, you know, millionaires and billionaires at the top of the scale. Mm, Okay, I'm going to leave that with you. I'm going to leave the politics to you, Chair Bernstein. But I do want to come back and ask you about what the president and what the Biden administration is doing, because you highlight those middle class Mm -hmm. consumers. Right. But when you look out at the some of the wage data, the savings data, we're seeing that folks on the lower end of those rungs are really hurting. We're seeing savings really evaporate and a negative savings rate for some of the lowest earners in the economy. We're seeing even in those middle class areas, wage gains and wage growth really tapering off and going negative. We're seeing a big increase in folks taking on credit. We're seeing a big increase in defaults on credit cards, things like that. So what is the president doing to address some of these issues? And what is the administration doing to really target uh, some of these folks who are on the lower end of the economic totem pole? There's a lot of policies to talk about in that space. Some of them are things that we are fighting for. They're in our budget. We need Congress to help us. So one thing that comes to mind listening to you is um, uh, two areas of really important unfinished business. One is housing and the other is child care. In both cases, we have deep and aggressive agendas to deliver uh, accessible, affordable child care and to really build up the stock of affordable housing. Now, affordable housing has been in a slump for 10 years coming. That's a 10-year-in-the-making problem. But I want to push back on some of the characterization of the current economy. So one thing we've clearly seen is that the wages of the lowest wage workers have grown faster than uh, those at the top. The wages of those at the middle have grown faster than those at the top. And that is characteristic of a persistently tight labor market. But we have more work to do on the child tax credit, on housing and on child care, much like I said a minute ago. So talk to me about that work, because one thing that's actually come up a bit more recently is the national debt. We've seen the national debt recently rise to $34 trillion, and that's become something of a political talking point. So how are you thinking about some of these policies, like you talked about housing, childcare, that mm-hmm. come from yeah. you know the government spending more money, along with this national debt that's, again, rising up past $34 trillion? Well, when you're in a... What do they say when you're in a hole, stop digging? Mm-hmm. So it is very important for us to pay for the kinds of initiatives I was just talking about. And that's what we do in our budget. So when we talk about investing $170 billion in significantly increasing the amount of affordable housing out there, we're talking about 2 million housing units for low-income people, uh, including expanding uh, the low-income housing tax credit, as well as a, a set of other investments to both rehabilitate and build new affordable homes. 
it is fully paid for in our budget through largely more fair taxation, um, particularly on households above 400000 So uh, the president's fiscal or tax agenda uh, raises taxes on no one under uh, 400000 But he does really fight back on this problem that there are some really rich people out there that are doing two very unfortunate things. One is legal, one isn't. The legal part is paying an effective tax rate that's below 10%, while you know some upper middle class people pay one that's higher than that. And that's just because of all the loopholes in the tax code that the president closes in his budget to pay for the very policies I just mentioned. And the other is tax evasion. Now, let's talk about this for a second. We know that there is a multi-hundred billion dollar tax gap. I've seen numbers, 500, 600 billion dollars a year of millionaires and billionaires illegally evading taxes um, through all kinds of shenanigans that uh, you know, keep their tax rate um, artificially low. By funding the IRS to uh, do the kinds of auditing and reviews it needs to go after those um, high-end tax evaders, you know, this is not us. This is the nonpartisan CBO scoring that is raising hundreds of billions of dollars in our budget. Okay, now I know you want to talk, don't want to talk about politics, but I really do think uh, it's important to talk about who's fighting for whom here. Republicans have been very clear that they want to take that funding away. They want to. Um, uh, reduce the funding for the IRS, which would have very clearly um, a negative increase on reducing tax evasion. That was part one of our interview with Jared Bernstein, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. In part two, we'll get into how President Biden's big investment in U.S. manufacturing are doing, the continued trade war with China, and what comes next. We'll be right back. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Thanks for sticking with us. Let's get back into our one-on-one with Jared Bernstein, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. I want to talk to you a little bit about manufacturing, because just about every economist I talk to says the U.S. is in a manufacturing recession. There have been a lot of Biden administration policies that have been aimed at boosting manufacturing. So how are you all thinking about the struggles of this industry? Well, I wouldn't characterize that as struggles in the following sense. So since the president got here, um, there have been something like 790,000 manufacturing jobs added, and that is uh, a much higher pace of growth in that sector. Now, this is since he got here in 21. You're talking more about, you know, the last few months where employment there has been more flat, and I will address that. But I think if you look over his term, um, we've had a very strong uh, manufacturing job renaissance and and certainly no sign of recession in the sector. And in fact, one reason I'm confident about that, and this also speaks to your question, uh, Dion, is... um, is the investment in manufacturing facilities. One of the things we've seen is uh, the 
the most ambitious investments on record in building domestic manufacturing facilities. This comes out of the CHIPS Act. This comes out of the IRA. It's also related to the Infrastructure Act, that sort of triumvirate of, of reinvesting in America, reversing decades of disinvestment, standing up domestic chip factories, standing up domestic clean energy production, electric vehicles, electric batteries. We have literally hundreds of billions of private capital flowing in, taking mm -hmm. advantage of subsidies from the IRA. Now, once these factories are built, six to eight quarters later, once the um, shovels go in the ground, uh, you start to see more manufacturing employment. So we're optimistic about where that's headed. The Biden administration has also kept a lot of Trump administration policies on China in place, continuing the trade war. If President Biden is reelected, I mean, should Americans expect more tariffs and these kind of tough on China policies? Well, first of all, I'm not going to talk about politics or Trump-Biden. I don't do that. I, I want to talk about uh, policies. And in terms of tariffs, um, there is an ongoing set of negotiations, uh, discussions, many of which are uh, internal, on these 301 tariffs. And when we're ready to uh, have a public readout on those discussions, we'll certainly uh, bring it to anyone who's interested. But we're not there yet. Let me just say the following. It is completely legitimate for uh, this or for, frankly, any other administration to protect our national security and to fight back against unfair trade practices. That's what we've tried to do while investing in worker-centered trade policy. Now, part of that means building up our own domestic capacity to export more abroad uh, or, frankly, to uh, welcome foreign direct investment into our economy. Okay. I want to ask you about the labor market. We have seen a slowdown, and last month on the household part of the non-farm payrolls report or the jobs report, we did see a significant decline, the biggest decline in jobs since uh, the midpoint of the pandemic. What are you thinking about, and how is the Biden administration thinking about the labor market, and does the U.S. economy need to generate more jobs? Well, the labor market remains really very strong. Um, a large majority will tell you that um, job availability is high and secure right now. So I think here we, we should really listen to what people are telling us about the strength of the job market. The payroll survey is the one that generated 216,000 jobs in December mm -hmm. and 225,000 per month uh, over 2023. That's very strong job growth. Now, you talked about the December decline, which was something like seven, almost 700,000 yeah. in the household survey. The month before the household survey was up, 600,000. So that is just a really noisy survey. It jumps around from month to month. So if you're trying to look month to month, um, you should discount the household survey. Now, that said, uh, we have to pay attention to every piece of datum that comes in. So we're watching that. Uh, but I think all, all the evidence shows what a strong job market we have. And people know that. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols.
Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. We talked about a few key pieces of legislation the Biden administration has passed, but I want to ask you, does the U.S. economy need more stimulus to help consumers out of the confidence recession we're seeing, some of these manufacturing issues or anything else? Do you feel like the economy needs more stimulus as we look forward through 2024? Typically, you think about stimulus in an economy that's performing quite differently than this one. If we were in a recession, that would be a fair conversation. But we are very clearly not looking at those conditions. I'm sure you've heard people talk about the soft landing. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is the idea that we've managed to ease inflationary pressures. It's down two-thirds off of its peak while maintaining a very low unemployment rate, below 4% for 23 months in a row. Um, If you look at consumer spending, GDP growth, the job market, uh, you just don't see a recession uh, in, in the current economy. So no, I would not vote for stimulus on those grounds. Now look, it's hard to look around corners these days, but I like where we are. I like the momentum that we have. You know, there was a recent report from the World Bank talking about how the U.S. has you know, just been really a standout in terms of global growth. And I think the, the facts support that assessment. Mm. All right. I'll ask you the flip side of that question then. Are you looking at maybe budget reduction as in cutting spending? Is that going to be a Biden administration policy moving forward? I think the important thing there is to try to figure out where there are some inefficiencies in the budget and cut back on spending in those areas. And I am really enthused about seeing the implementation of some of the measures in the Inflation Reduction Act, which I fear nobody knows enough about. So thank you for giving me a chance uh, to talk about them, uh, that do two things. They reduce the cost of health care, health coverage, prescription drugs to um, uh, seniors in particular, uh, folks on Medicare, and they save hundreds of billions in the budget by cutting back on inefficient uh, spending in that sector. Those are real savings both for families and for the budget. So, yeah, I think that's an area where we, we need to keep hammering away at. Okay. Chair Bernstein, is there any news you want to break? The reason I get to talk to people like you, Dion, is because I don't break news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's my assignment. That was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Jared Bernstein. We'll be back on Sunday with regularly scheduled programming, getting you ready to take on the week. Until then, thanks for listening to this special episode of WSJ's Take on the Week. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. We got help this week from Charlotte Gartenberg. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Melanie Roy is our supervising producer. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabowin. Stay smart. <laughs>